Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you are listening to The Reese Show. On the show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. (laughs) You can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our route forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E.co. Thanks. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm excited to chat with Grace Lindsay. Grace is a computational neuroscientist who recently wrote the book Models of the Mind, How Physics, Engineering, and Mathematics Have Shaped Our Understanding of the Brain. Grace, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, excited to dive in. It's um this book, it was just good. It was a great book about how I'm I'm a noob neuroscientist person and so like I'm trying to understand how brains work. And so this was but I'm also a computer scientist type and so like this book was a great way to be like, "Oh, okay, here's how some of these cool computer scientists and other like, you know, mathematical ideas have kind of uh, shaped our understanding of the brain." Before we go into like the brain stuff, I just want to understand mm-hmm. for you Grace like personally, how, you know, like why are you into this, you know, um, brain stuff? And like, what's the like through line that kind of ties your interest into brains together and brains and mathematics and that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, you said you're on the computer science side and, you know, this is like a gateway into neuroscience. And I came the other way. I started, by the time I left high school, I knew that I wanted to study neuroscience. And I was also pretty sure I wanted to get a PhD in neuroscience because, um, I can't really explain why I'm interested in, you know, humans and human minds, because I just feel like, isn't everybody like, it's so obvious that we want to understand ourselves. Um, But then when I was learning about psychology in high school, I kind of felt that it wasn't answering the question of kind of why or how people were the way they were. It was just documenting things that people do. And then I learned that neuroscience is the study of the brain and how the brain produces the behaviors that psychology studies for the most part. And so that's when I switched into thinking I want to do neuroscience. And then when I was studying neuroscience as an undergraduate uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, I learned about computational neuroscience. And that was kind of the same process again, because neuroscience, the experimental side felt like it was documenting a lot of facts about, you know, what neurons do and uh, how they fire and how they relate to each other and all of that, but didn't feel like it was answering my how questions of how does all of that lead to interesting computations and behavior. And building mathematical models where you piece together all the experimental findings felt like it was finally getting more at the how and why are we the way that we are that um, initially interested me. Uh, way back in high school. So I think that's what it was. And I also had a a parallel interest in astronomy when I was in high school. And so I guess um, kind of the more physics-y side of things, I I never really shied away from. That's cool. That's an interesting thing where it's like, yeah, I mean, to some extent, it's, it's, you know, what the physicists or mathematics folks would kind of, you know, hang their hat on where they're like, you know, there's all these, um, you know, more gushy kind of things, but then you can just start to explain them more and more in terms of these more like primitive concepts or whatever. Um, 
And so, or more like foundational concepts or something like that. Um, and I also love, yeah, it's an interesting thing where it's like, you're tr- like searching for just how it works, you know, instead of like what it's actually doing. Um, that makes me think actually, as we kind of dive into some of the, like the book and things like that, you know, there've been these different metaphors for how the brain works over time. And, you know, back in the day, it was like, oh, the brain is a Swiss army knife or the brain is a machine, like a factory or the brain is, um, you know, these organs. And now we kind of are starting to think of the brain as a computer. Is that, do you think that metaphor is just like the metaphor of our times? Or is there something like deeply true about like computational processes, both with computers and with our brain, that's actually like a fundamental yeah, so this is a real hot topic on uh, neuroscience Twitter and in some articles that have been written for uh, popular science outlets. This idea of, you know, the brain is a computer or is not <laughs> has been argued different ways. So when I say or think the brain is a computer, I mean it in a literal way, as in it is a thing that processes information. It computes to some extent. Um, and kind of on top of that, it's we kind of think of its purpose as to process information. Uh, so that's why I would describe the brain as a computer in a literal way. Now, saying the brain is a laptop or, you know, is a cell phone or is a particular type of man-made computer that we use in our everyday lives, that's a, that's a metaphor, an analogy, and, you know, it has its limits because it is that, um, as all metaphors do. So you can still get some ways in understanding the brain by comparing it to the computers that we use. And that can be interesting to explain how the brain works maybe to someone or to to kind of write it up in a more poetic way. Uh, but I think that the version of the literal truth is almost not deniable, yet some people do deny it. So again, it just depends on how you're defining all of these words. Yeah. Uh, but I think I, I, there is that trend of always comparing the brain to the latest technology. And when people are comparing the brain to computers that humans have made, they're doing that and it has its place. Um, but there's also just the literal truth to it. Yeah, I like that. I think that there's, um, yeah, it's like, brains are computational, you know, or something. And like computers are also computational. They are these processing Mm -hmm. info things versus like, no, it's like my brain is not my iPhone. Like that's a little bit different. And that's, you know, the apps and, you know, that kind of thing. It's like those. And even the word computer originally described humans who were using their brain to compute things. So (laughs) it doesn't have to mean the stuff that, uh, you know, Intel or Apple makes. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Love that. Yeah. So kind of diving into the book, I mean, and yeah, just for our listeners, it's like, it was a cool, it, it just, you talked about it in like your background where it's like, you know, for me trying to understand how the brain works, it's like, this is, you just provide this kind of overarching kind of narrative of like how, um, how brains have like taken things or whatever, not taken things, but how neuroscience has kind of learned from other disciplines and applied that to the brain to kind of understand the brain better. Maybe at like a very, very high level, could you try to like explain this kind of a tough question but could you try to like explain you know how the mind works or your model of the mind in these kind of mechanistic computational neuroscience terms 
Yeah. So as I said, I'm kind of interested in building models that can then synthesize a bunch of experimental data and, and yeah, provide a mechanism. So a lot of the mathematical models that I talk about are in that category, um, where it's like we understand that a neuron works uh, the same way as an electrical circuit. And so you can take the equations from electrical engineering and you can use them to describe how an a neuron takes an input and uh, produces its output. And so that's a kind of a direct mechanistic explanation of what an individual neuron is doing. And then you have other models that try to explain how populations of neurons interact and those pull from, for example, physics, which modeled how particles in a gas or a fluid interact and use those equations to model the interactions between neuron populations. Um, and then you can kind of get a little bit more high level or metaphorical in um, how you're looking at, at the brain and um, look at things like uh, the structure of the brain using graph theory and uh, network science and um, try to understand the relationship between structure and function in the brain. But that's at a more high level. You're not really like thinking about how neurons work there. Uh, and so there isn't um, there isn't a single model that uh, I'm proposing or advocating for uh, for how we understand the brain because the brain is made up of so many different parts and can be dissected and studied in so many different ways. And every neuroscientist has their own reason why they're studying neuroscience and their own little corner of it that they're interested in. And mathematical modeling and the influence from physics and computer science and other fields can be seen at you know almost all of those levels and, and areas. So um, there's, yeah, there's just a lot of different ways that you can pull in from other subjects to try to study something about the brain. And I really wanted to just showcase that full range. Um, and yeah, because, because it's true, it's what the field is right now. And because I think it's interesting to see how interdisciplinary uh, the study of the brain is. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it really does pull from all these different fields. And it kind of like, it was a cool thing just reading the book. I was like, oh, once we even understood how electrical circuits worked, then we could start to think of our brain in terms of those circuits. The one that you just talked about that I didn't, I definitely get the kind of, I get the electrical circuit side. I get the, um, you know, the computer science graph theory side where you say, okay, we have, you know, one of the cool ones that you shared in your book was, you know, the small world, um, hypo you know, theory where it's like, oh, our brain roughly is has a network graph that is a small world graph, aka it has a bunch of hub and spoke things where anything is only a couple jumps away from each other. Um, and we see that in real life in a lot of different ways, and we see it in our brain. And so it's like kind of cool to see like how networks in the real world map are similar to the networks in the brain. But one that I didn't understand that you just chatted about was like how the physics how the, like the physics of like molecules interacting or like you know liquid or gas dynamics, how that um, applies to groups of neurons in the brains. Could you double click on that for a second? Yeah, so that comes up in a few different ways. One way um, is when we think about memory in the brain. So basically, you can think of a memory as a certain activity state of your neurons. You have a bunch of neurons, and broadly speaking, they can be on or off. And so a certain pattern of on and off in all of these neurons represents one memory. Uh, and what this is, so this work on kind of relating uh, the interaction of particles to the interaction of neurons is uh, known as the Hopfield Network. It was done by John Hopfield, who was a physicist who just said, hey, I'm going to go study the brain and try to apply my tools to the brain. And he really just directly imported the math of um, what's known as the Ising model, uh, which studies how um, uh, particles interact, for example, in a block of iron 
the different uh, magnetic dipoles of the different atoms in the block of iron pull on each other, and so there's interactions between the different atoms. And neurons connect to each other, so there's interactions between neurons. And the more active one neuron is, the more active it will make another neuron. Uh, and so you can just kind of port that mathematical model from atoms in a block of iron to neurons in a population and show that you can put in kind of a little pattern of a memory, a little bit of um, the activity state that that full population is supposed to have, and through the interactions you can reinstate that whole memory um, if the network is set up so that that memory is an attractor state. And so that's a mathematical concept that's used in a lot of different fields, uh, the idea of an attractor. And so that's just really, as I said, kind of taking very directly uh, the math and the concepts and the terminology from physics and mathematics and just saying, I think neurons work similar enough that we can go with this. And it's actually been very influential. Like people now, experimental neuroscientists look for attractors in the brain. You'll just see papers that are about that. And that's just directly from, you know, this influence from physics. Love it. Yeah, cool. I And I wasn't, um, yeah, I love the attractor framing where it's just like, oh, okay, we have um, a, yeah, the memory is a set of on and off states. And so if you just trigger a couple of them, then the whole pattern will then replicate or will, will, will trigger and fire as well. And like, so any of those parts of that, um, anything that leads to that basin or whatever, that attractor basin, it's like, that's what the, the that's what a memory is. So, and I didn't, the thing I didn't understand was the, um, the iron piece and how that was like a direct correlation from that. So that's cool. The other thing that like, when I think about, you know, your book, it's like, you know, another thing that you pulled from, which is like, feels like it's a new uh, kind of connection here is around like probability theory um, and like, you know, Bayesian kind of uh, predictions and stuff like that. Could you say a little bit more like how um, probability theory and like Bayesianism or whatever is kind of showing up in neuroscience these days? Yeah. So um, Bayes' rule is used a lot in neuroscience. I mean, it's used, you know, in, on one side, just in terms of analyzing data, you know, you use probability and statistics and Bayes' rule comes up, but um, it's used a lot also in modeling, more on the behavioral level, to try to explain people's behavior. And so the main features of a Bayesian approach that makes it different than the more traditional approach to how we might think about cognition is that, one, it's probabilistic. So you're dealing with a probability of something being true rather than just a a flat true or false value, um, or the probability of, you know, a certain variable being a certain value. And then also there's this idea of priors, which says that you're, to come to some conclusion, you're taking in the evidence that you get in that moment, but you're also combining it with past knowledge that you've gained through experience or development or genetics or whatever it is. And so uh, the way that it comes up a lot in the study of behavior is specifically in perception science and understanding why people kind of come to the conclusions that they come to when they take in a visual image, for example. So you can imagine like a visual image that is ambiguous. You can't really tell exactly what's in it. And maybe some people will come to one conclusion and other people will come to a different conclusion. And the reason for that would be that they have different priors. So then one person might expect to see um, like a person that they know in a certain room. And even if the uh, lighting is dim, they're going to conclude that the person that they know is there, even though they're not actually getting a lot of strong evidence at that time. So Bayes' rule can really explain that well, because it says, oh, when you're in a regime of weak 
evidence in the moment, the probability of everything is kind of low and spread out, but your prior is still strong. And so you just kind of combine those and then just say, okay, I'm going to like rely more on my prior at this moment um, because my evidence is weak at that time. And so this has been used to explain a lot of different aspects of perception and also just other elements of, of cognition uh, at this behavioral level. And then people, once they've established that this um, equation kind of captures behavior in a certain way, then they go looking for the neural mechanisms that could be implementing uh, that equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I think that there's, I mean, I'm just hearing you, as you talk about this, I'm hearing this really cool, um, you know, skill that you have, just like just like the multi-levelness to it, where you're like, okay, sometimes we're talking about, you know, the neurons, the individual neurons, sometimes we're talking about groups of neurons, and then sometimes we're talking about the behavioral level. And often the probability stuff happens at the behavioral level. Um, yeah, and I think that we just had... Um, the predictive pro- uh, Andy Clark on the podcast, predictive processing stuff. And so it's like, okay, yeah, how do we, um, uh, yeah, it's like we have all these priors of the world and then so we just get this like random evidence um, from the sensory data that kind of like loops into uh, those priors. And so it kind of informs a lot of, uh, it, it's a good explainer for um, our biases and how we predict the world is just constantly being aware that we have these priors that are kind of pushing out there. The one- yeah, yeah. And I think mm-hmm. you hear a lot of people who are well-versed in this area speak in terms of priors when they <laughs> explain their own behavior. Priors, priors, priors. Totally, yeah. totally. It's a good, um, like a meta thing as a scientist. It's like, hmm, well, I know that this paper is claiming this, but my prior says that it's not true. So <laughs> yeah, It's a good, it's a helpful, and I'm part of like the effective altruist and rationalist folks to some extent. So it's mm-hmm. like, they're always talking about priors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, a question um, that I have is like, or, I mean, let me hi- highlight one other cool thing here um, just to hear you talk about. It's like this, like um, some of this stuff and all this, like some of the network stuff is like complex systems-y, but then the other stuff that's kind of connected-ish to complex systems is like the information theory side, which I thought was really cool to learn about how um, information theory and like, you know, rate-based coding uh, has kind of uh, informed neuroscience. So could you explain a little bit about how information theory or like the race-based coding stuff? Yeah, so information theory comes from Shannon, and it's this idea about kind of how can you create a code that will help you efficiently communicate information. Um, And so this, you know, almost as soon as Shannon came up with this, people started applying it to biology because they're like, yeah, we want to be able to quantify information in some sense. We want to know, like, what are these systems doing? There's a lot of, not just in the brain, but a lot of complex systems uh, in the body that people want to understand what are they telling each other, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that where information seems like it would be a good thing to be able to study in those systems and to have a a formal way to to get a handle on that um, seemed very helpful to people. And the way that it comes up in neuroscience, a a big focus has been um, defining what the neural code is. So in order to calculate the amount of information that a neuron is sending, you need to know the code that the neuron is using. That's how you calculate the the entropy and um, the amount of information that's in the code. And so people have proposed different things. The rate-based coding that you mentioned says that a symbol in the neural code is the number of um, spikes or action potentials that a neuron fires. And so it's like kind of in a set amount of time, you calculate or count up how many spikes a neuron had. And then you say that's the symbol, that's what it's you know representing in that moment. And you do, can do that for each chunk of time and across different neurons. And that's how you define this code. And then you can calculate how much information uh, is in the neural code. 
But that's, you know, just a choice that a scientist is making to some extent to say that that's what mm. the code should be. And other people have uh, proposed other codes, which, uh, for example, could be one based on spike timing, which is not just the number of spikes in a set amount of time, but the time between two spikes or the time of the first spike relative to some other event. Um, and so people have kind of come up with different things that could possibly be the neural code. Uh, to try to quantify information differently. And it's really a, it's an issue because um, the only way to verify who's right to some extent is to ask the other area of the brain that's receiving these these spikes from these neurons. So where these neurons connect to, mm. uh, that's what, you know, that's what matters is what those neurons do with the spikes. And so we can discuss things in terms of the code and entropy and, and try to define it in terms of number of spikes or whatever. Uh, but what matters is, is what the neurons later on do and eventually what your muscles do <laughs> when they receive input from neurons. Uh, so it's, it's very tempting to want to study the brain in this way, but it does have this problem of maybe making it think like making it seem like um, things are more, solidified as what the neural code is than, than what we actually know. Hmm. Because, uh, yeah, and it'll vary by brain area. It'll vary by what the brain area is doing and all of that. Uh, so while many people have written papers on what is the neural code and their definition of the neural code, uh, there isn't a single answer yet. Though rate-based coding is probably most commonly assumed. Got it. Okay, cool. So that, so yeah, because as I was reading book, like my, my takeaway was kind of like, oh, rate-based coding is the main one. But as you're saying, there's like, there's a lot of different, you know, languages or codes or whatever for how the individual neurons talk to each other. It's kind of like an interesting um, game in like, just like going to a different country and you're like, how do you all speak to each other? Or if you're like kind of <laughs> listening to birds or whatever, you're like, how do the birds talking? And here we're trying to understand like, how are the neurons talking to each other? And the only thing that they can, or yeah, and it's, it's just interesting because like there are weird constraints on the system that are like, um, that the neurons can essentially, they don't have that, they don't have, we have lots of different ways that we can speak as humans, but the neurons only have like, you know, like you can either fire or you can not fire roughly, you know, and you can like yeah. determine. Yeah, 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 so yeah. it's like, that's the, um, <laughs> and so it's like, that would be hard. It's kind of like speaking in terms of Morse code or binary or something like that yeah. with a, like a time-based yeah. element to it. So gosh, that's interesting. Um, do you think that there's, you know, kind of pulling this all together as you, and, and I'm hearing what you're saying before, which is like, there's all these different frames on uh, neuroscience that these different fields have. And um, those frames can operate at different levels and can help us understand like what's going on in there. Um, how at the end of your book, you kind of talk about some of these grand unified theories. Um, is there any, you know, one of them is that, you know, this like, or maybe could you kind of like say what those theories are and say like which one you might be the most inclined towards, if at all, like if you had to choose one or if you had mm -hmm. to come up with your own or whatever? Yeah, so um, I, yeah, I chose three to cover there and it was a little bit difficult to choose exactly um, what what to cover there because it's not like there's a formal definition of what a grand unified theory is. Um, but the three that I talked about were uh, the free energy principle, which is associated with Carl Friston and uh, briefly just kind of puts a lot of emphasis on the notion that the brain is trying to predict uh, what's happening. It's trying to predict its own sensory uh, inputs is, is a big thing that people talk about with respect to that one. And then there is um, Jeff Hawkins' uh, theory, which now goes by the name A Thousand Brains, the Thousand Brains Theory, um, which is um, a little more in the weeds and with respect to the 
things about neuroscience that it pulls from, but it's kind of focusing on this idea that you have a bunch of parallel processing units in your cortex that are um, really focused on kind of representing things spatially. Uh, is one way to describe it. And then there was uh, integrated information theory, which is specifically about consciousness, so not really a full theory of the brain. Um, but it says that a thing is conscious. It's not even specific to brains. A, a thing is conscious to extent to the extent that it integrates information in these uh, specific way that, that they um, kind of pull from these axioms that they create. So those are the three that I covered. Um, that was a chapter that was the most difficult to write from a, like a social diplomatic perspective <laughs> <laughs> because there's a lot of big personalities involved in these theories. And, um, and I think that I, you know, kind of say this in the chapter though, I, I don't think that it makes sense to have a grand unified theory of the brain. So there really isn't any of these that I would, um, you know, pick to, to, uh, be the winner. And there isn't really any at all that I would pick to be the winner, <laughs> um, just because uh, the brain has evolved over eons. And um, I don't think that it's working according to simple principles. It does too many different things with too many different mechanisms. And I I don't know that trying to um, to put simple principles on it is productive in, in understanding it. Obviously there's a level, you know, you want to, you don't just want to have to describe absolutely everything all the time as though it's completely from scratch. Um, but at the same time, I don't think you're going to derive from first principles, how the brain works and then be able to explain all the data either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I think, and, and I get that. And it's, it's funny for me, just like coming in as essentially an outsider. And it's like you talking about like the different, um, you know, the, the, the big personalities and maybe some people were sad they didn't get into the chapter and maybe the people who are in the chapter, you know, so there's all kinds of that, like sociology of, of, you know, science stuff. Um, is there, I do think for me, like when I start to learn about, you know, the free energy principle and correct me if I'm wrong, but like free energy principle stuff is very connected to predictive processing and these kind of like, you know, you have these predictions of the world and then you fit the sensory data into them and you're trying to minimize, um, error or surprisal or whatever. Is that, are they mm -hmm. roughly the same? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So predictive predictive processing and sensory information is definitely a big part of it. Because as you said, yeah, you have to predict something and then compare it to what you um, you get as an input. And then, yeah, you want to have low error on that. Yeah. The funny thing for me is, like, as I was reading now and, and then as I was reading the, like, Thousand Brain stuff, it was kind of like I felt that they were, you know, like, talking in relatively, like, similar terms almost. I know the Thousand Brains one, as you kind of noted, it has these specific, it says, like, oh, no, it's very, like, it's a cortical columns maximalist or whatever. It's like we have these cortical columns that are 150,000 of them, and they all kind of, you know, talk to each other in different ways, and it doesn't even matter. You could, like, put them anywhere, and they could, like, do their same thing. But, like, the shared thing between them is that they have... I don't know, they, they're these like predicted, they both share this like predictive modeling of the world to some extent where it's like, hey, they're making these claims about the models of the world. They're kind of multi-level in that there's, you know, these different levels within the, the columns or whatever that also then kind of, um, you know, when you're trying to aggregate this information, they kind of synthesize it with each other by, um, a, you know, combining the models of the world together. Um, is that, am I hearing that right? That they are kind of connected in that way? Like, I was kind of like, oh, these are kind of too, you know, torn of the same cloth or something. Is that right? Or am I wrong there? I could see how that's related because the thousand brains theory is about kind of building up a model 
Um, and then, yeah, usually when you talk about predictions, you have to have some model that you use to make a prediction. You have a model of how the world works that you use to make a prediction. Um, I don't know that the Thousand Brains cares about calculating errors or minimizing mm. errors or anything like that, which is the focus of um, the free energy principle. But I could see how they're similar. I actually, um, I just wrote a piece for the Simons Foundation, which is a, a foundation that does a lot of neuroscience research about predictive coding, particularly for the study of the visual system. And so I interviewed some people who were studying it for that. And really, the one of the big takeaways was just that it doesn't have a super clean definition that everyone agrees upon. And there are a lot of things that you can cast in a predictive light. Mm -hmm. um, and so it can be very expansive in that way, which makes it, you know, a candidate for a grand unified theory, because you can take almost any data and say, well, this is a prediction if you look yeah. at it this way. Um, and sometimes it's helpful to think of it that way, because sometimes people aren't thinking about the fact that the brain could be generating predictions at all. Uh, so so it can be good to, you know, have that in the back of your mind as a candidate for, for what um, a brain area might be doing in a given moment. Um, but I do think that that is uh, an issue if we really want to be claiming something very strong. If we're just saying, like, generally predictions happen, then yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but yeah, if we're trying to make it seem like, oh, this is really exactly what, what everything in the brain is doing, then that feels a little out of place to me. Got it. Yeah. I love it. I think, and, and I'm, I'm coming from the perspective of the like generalist or whatever. And so I'm just like, okay, predictions are happening. These are connected or whatever. Like these yeah, things talk sure. to each other, but actually getting <laughs> down to brass tacks, it makes sense that you'd need to be more formal. Um, a question that I have, like kind of, so we, so we have this model of the brain, which is a you know, it's this information processing thing that is informed by these various different interdisciplinary fields. And we can imagine the neurons interact or the neurons themselves, how they work, and then the groups of neurons and how they work in terms of network theory and information theory. And then that kind of uh, goes up uh, another level to behavior and like how our brain does behavior and does predictions and stuff like that. Given that model, the kind of um, the, the, the reason why, um, and this can be like a co-conversation here is like, um, Thinking about, I want to kind of understand a little bit more about like, so, so the stuff that I'm doing is like about what information wants, and I'm writing a book called What Information Wants, and like how information flows both in like text and on the internet and stuff like that, but also how like information flows in our brains and like how our brains work both as an information storage thing, but also as an information processing thing. And thinking of like the kinds of information that can like actually live there or like you know what kind of like why do we have catchy songs in our brains and stuff like that is there so 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 kind of going in that direction a bit and then we'll also go down like the ai direction a bit in a second how do you think about like the brain like how should we think about the kinds of information or memes that are that like can be stored in the brain or that are like fit to be stored in the mind so there's a a trend I think it's a trend. I'm hoping that it's a trend in neuroscience lately about focusing on studying ethologically relevant tasks mm -hmm. in animals because the standard is like you take a mouse or a monkey or some animal and you put it, um, you know, in front of a screen and show it like very basic like lines and shapes and have it do some task with that. And it's just not what the animal uh, is used to doing in its evolutionary niche. It's just not... It's not hitting, you know, the circuits as they would normally be used uh, in that animal's proper life outside of the lab. And there's a concern that then we're not going to actually get at any interesting principles if we're doing such artificial tasks. Even if the animals can kind of learn how to do them, 
they're probably not doing them in a way that we would understand or a way that relates to, to what they're normally using their brain for. So I think any answer to that question would have to, you know, specify uh, whose brain, <laughs> mm-hmm. or at least what species brain uh, are we talking about? I assume humans are most relevant here. Um, but to that point, then it should be noted that a lot of neuroscience is not done on humans. Um, mm. So I think that, yeah, there's there's a sense of you have to think about the essentially just the evolutionary history of the species and what it would be having to do in its day-to-day life to survive um, and what it does do. So actually like looking at the literature about animal behavior and understanding what they do before you're going to understand what kind of stimuli and what kind of tasks um, are best suited to, to study in that animal. Um, now, obviously there are a lot of people who are interested in the evolution of humans and who try to kind of cast anything that humans do or think in light of, you know, how it served them when they were cavemen or whatever. (laughs) And that's, you know, can be speculative and of varying degrees of quality, those arguments. And at the same time, also, um, humans have proven themselves incredibly adaptive. So we are obviously capable of um, understanding very complex things that don't seem to have any relationship to uh, what we would need to survive in the wild. (laughs) So when it comes to humans, it's, you know, it's tricky Uh, There's also, um, I'm focusing just on recent trends in neuroscience, which is probably not the most, like, not the best answer. (laughs) The way to get at the best answer is just what people are thinking about. But there has been a lot of focus lately on thinking about spatial maps and how people think spatially, even for abstract things and how, you know, you can um, organize concepts spatially. And there have been tests that try to show that, indeed, if you try to have people learn some kind of complex graph, they will traverse it as though, you know, they're walking through a house or something like that, like they'll have to go in order. Um, And so I think that that's interesting, because that does suggest some kind of constraints on our thoughts that were really based in particularly three dimensional space is kind of how we have to think and things in that form will, you know, be easiest for us to process. Whereas I think there are some video games where they try to teach people to navigate a four dimensional space. And it's just like really trippy, and it takes a lot of practice. (laughs) So there are, you know, some built in uh, cognitive mechanisms that are probably relevant to what we can and can't take in uh, as humans. Yeah, I like that. I think that there's, and again, and thank you for the, um, I, I like, what did you call the thing where people are doing like ethologically relevant or what you call it? Ethologic, yeah. Like their ethological niche there. Yeah, ah, that's like. Not ecologic. No, it's ethological. Well, so uh, like animal ethology is like studying the behavior of animals in their natural oh. environment kind of stuff. Okay. At least that's how I've always understood no, it. No, no, totally. I've, just, I've <laughs> yeah. never heard that word, so I'm excited to learn it. So ethologically rev- relevant. It's not like ethics, but it's like the, no, yeah, yeah, okay, great, great, great. <laughs> it's not eco. Okay, cool. Yeah, so that's, that's cool. I think that that even, you know, expands my mind a bit to like, when we try to understand like what kinds of information is quote unquote fit for the brain, um, it is it, we have to think yeah what species are we talking about and that different species um have different things that are fit for them and, and and to understand the things that are fit for them um understanding the evolutionary history of like oh this brain was built on earth you know through this time like okay mm-hmm. that makes sense that a and like a classic version of this might be something like you know um how plants can only see uh, a certain part of the spectrum because that is the only part of the spectrum that makes it through the like um, greenhouse gas layer or whatever. Um, and like our, our eyes have like a similar thing where it's like when we were, our eyes developed in the water. And so like, there's only a certain amount of water or certain, um, certain wavelengths that come through the water. And so our eyes are kind of like fit for 
the wavelengths mm-hmm. that we could see. And so you could make a similar analogy to like what kinds of things could live in our brains based off of like how we've gone through time. Um, so I get that. That's interesting. I think the 3D space thing is another good thing where it's like, okay, yeah, it's obviously like it would be tough for like four dimensional stuff to quote unquote fit in our brains in an easy way. Yeah. Cause like we don't. And this, mm-hmm. uh, this comes up a lot as a neuroscientist because you're trying to understand like the activity of a hundred neurons at once. Yeah. And so basically what people do is they use uh, mathematical dimensionality reduction to plot it in three dimensional space so that you can look at it. Cause it's just like, what am I supposed to do with all this data if I can't look at it <laughs> and I can't look at anything that's higher than three dimensions. So <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. I mean, even stuff like that just gets me thinking about like, you know, things that are fit for our brains are things that are, that the natural world um, exists in, you know, like three dimensions and those kinds of things. Um, it also, like, let me ask another question on this, though, which is, like, like in my mind, and in hearing you talk about the, like, um, uh, our brains being, if we try to, like, remember some graph or whatever, like, we'll walk through it in our minds, pretending like it's a three-dimensional space or whatever, that reminds me of, like, how our brain within short-term memory has a visuospatial spe- sketch pad, aka our mind's eye. And then we also kind of have like a mind's ear, um, which is the like phonological loop or whatever, which is where like um, we can like talk, where we can like remember things that were said recently or something like that. Is there, in my mind, something like, like a catchy song, catchy songs kind of emerged because they could like live in the phonological loop because they were like, could live in the brain kind of like that um, and maybe some of these spatial spatial things and i know your like specialty is around vision and stuff like that like what kinds of am i am i correct in saying or directionally correct in saying that like sketchy songs like live in our you know phonological loop and then how and then from a vision perspective how do you think about like the kinds of things that might be like fit to live in our visual processing units or whatever yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a similar story of, you know, it's based on what you're used to, in a sense, and what you've experienced a lot of. So I think there are studies that show that, you know, if people are shown images that have um, kind of outliers in them, like there's an object that's in a location it's very rarely in. So I think I saw one example where it was like there was a shoe where a toothbrush would be on a sink or something like that. It's just like something that isn't normally there and um, how people like kind of process that differently and maybe don't remember the details of that image as well, because in your memory, you don't, you know, you're obviously, we're not perfectly storing everything we just briefly see. So when you recall things, you kind of fill it in with what is statistically there. Uh, So what's most likely to be there and what makes the most sense to be there, even if it wasn't actually there uh, in the image or if something else was there instead. Now, sometimes oddball things really um, stick in your memory because you're like, what the hell is that shoe doing there? So <laughs> sometimes it'll make you remember it better. But in certain cases, you know, something that is incongruous will uh, stand out or it will uh, be something that you can't recall because um, you're, you're filling it in. So I do think that it is based and so where you get those expectations is based both on genetics and evolutionary history and your own personal development and also even your kind of recent experience, you know, you can learn a new location and learn what is normally in that location in that, you know, office building or whatever. And uh, you might have trouble noticing when things are slightly off because, uh, you know, you're so used to seeing it a certain way. Um, so yeah, I think it all, uh, it all does depend on, on your sampling of the, of the statistics of the environment, basically, and how you're storing those statistics. Yeah, no, I like even even that framing is helpful for me. Your 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 sampling of the statistics of the environment and your storing of those statistics. It makes me let me let me ask one final question on this thing, and then we can move to AI stuff. Is there 
like, is this, or, um, I guess what I'm wondering is when I think about, um, something like, uh, biological evolution, I think about like, you know, genes, uh, kind of being this informational unit that then kind of, um, iterates and iterates with variation heredity to eventually fit into an uh, environmental niche and like access energy or whatever. Um, the kind of, and I'm like mapping that onto brains right now where it's like, okay, we have this like information, which is, um, you could call it, you know, culture, you could call like this, you know, the words that we're transmitting between us or like the words that exist on paper or things like that. And that stuff like iterating, iterating, and then like trying to find homes and its environmental niche, which can be brains or paper or the internet or whatever. Is there a part of neuroscience? I think a lot of what we've been chatting about today is kind of what I would call the, maybe like the environmental piece, which is understanding like how brains work. You're saying like, this is how brains work. This is how they do their thing, you know, but is there another part of neuroscience or is there a subfield within neuroscience that's like trying to ask or answer some of these questions that I'm kind of proposing here of like, not necessarily how brains work, but kind of like what, instead of like understanding the the homes that brains create, instead understanding like the information that could fit in those homes. <laughs> is that, question makes sense is there a feel for that or no yeah so if there is my guess is it would be more in psychology mm -hmm. where people are kind of studying you know yeah what can people comprehend and what can they remember in more of just a black box input output thing not necessarily thinking about the neural mechanisms of that mm -hmm. i think there's probably a lot more categorization of just what does and doesn't work and honestly probably even in um like psychology of education mm -hmm. i would imagine people care a lot about what information you can get into a brain and how <laughs> um, so yeah i'm sure that people are, are thinking about that i don't know of a strong um component of it in neuroscience specifically though. okay beautiful that that's 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 helpful um so talk about this this ai stuff for a second there's um the another cool part of your book is that you kind of looked at the emergence of, you know, artificial intelligence networks, so, you know, in, 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 uh, you know, artificial works of, of artificial neurons or whatever, um, and how that kind of, uh, co-evolved with some of our understandings of the brain. I wonder if like, I guess the my, my most general question here is like, how do you see this like ongoing research relationship between, uh, AI and the brain? Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, in the early days of artificial intelligence, it was kind of wrapped up with cognitive science and the study of the mind, um, even more so than the study of the brain, so to speak. Um, so people were just, yeah, interested in how people think and how thought could be automated. And so in that way, it was really based on, you know, humans and what humans were thinking and, um, yeah, how those processes could be mapped to some machine. Uh, and so... I, and to me, that's kind of, that is where it, that's a good place to ground things because my evidence that artificial intelligence should be possible, that we should be able to create a human-like uh, machine, a machine that can do everything that humans can do, is the fact that humans exist and we can do all the things that we do. So, <laughs> and I believe that we use physical things like our brain and our bodies to do all those things. And so there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to make a machine that does it if only, you know, if the, even if what that means is that we replicate the human body cell by cell, we should at least still be able to do it. It wouldn't really be sensible because there's a lot easier ways to create more humans. <laughs> so we don't need to be doing that in uh, a scientific engineering way. But um, yeah, so I think 
the the human brain is kind of the go-to existence proof that uh, we should be able to make intelligent machines. Uh, and then in terms of the actual history of the fields, they kind of weave in and out in terms of how much artificial intelligence is really looking to human minds and brains for inspiration versus going off on its own engineering track to just be able to get as much done with the tools that exist in the moment because, you know, artificial intelligence is, uh, uh, it's a scientific endeavor, but it's also an engineering endeavor in the sense that you're trying to create a product that works. And it's even a commercial endeavor where you want to create a product that works right now for cheap. Uh, so there are a lot more constraints on the creation of artificial intelligence that don't apply to the pure study of the brain. Um, but insofar as the study of the brain can be useful, artificial intelligence seems willing to take from it, you know, the field and the people studying it. Um, and right now we're in another moment of um, tight interaction where artificial neural networks are, you know, as the name suggests, inspired by how neurons work and how brains work, and they're doing really well at artificial intelligence now, and that is influencing the way that neuroscientists are thinking about and studying the brain and making the artificial intelligence people kind of even more interested in maybe, you know, peeking over at neuroscience and psychology and taking even more inspiration from there, uh, which, you know, works to varying degrees depending on the problem. Um, but yeah, we're at a time where they are talking again a lot right now. That's, yeah, that's, uh, talking is good. Is there like, <laughs> I mean, I guess this is, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think that there's a, you know, thinking about the future of, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, just, hmm, I'm not sure the, the right way to ask this, but like, yeah, I mean, how do you think, Maybe one way to ask this is, you know, I have a, a, one of my friends is working um, with this company, Anthropic, who does, like, you know, like artificial safety, re AI safety research. And one of their things is like trying to understand like how artificial neural, neural networks work. And so they like will go in there and like actually look at them and be like, what's going on with these neurons and what's going on with these neurons or whatever, um, these artificial neurons. Is there, I don't know, kind of reminds me of a lot of the stuff in your book, you know, where you're like talking about like are trying... Like, I guess maybe the way to ask this question is, how do you see us, you know, like, we would like to try to understand AI in a similar way as we've been, like, continuing to try to understand our brains. Do you have any instincts for, like, what that process will look like, our, like, continued understanding of AI? So that's actually very related to my actual research as a scientist, cool, great. Yeah. <laughs> the, the stuff that I do day to day, um, because I currently use artificial neural networks as a, a model of the brain, a model of the visual system in particular. So, you know, you build an artificial neural network and you train it to be good at doing some visual task where it takes in images and, and produces some output. And then, um, yeah, part of what I do is then try to dissect that network to see if it's working the same way that we think the brain is. And if it can, if it is or isn't, um, can it like help us generate hypotheses about how the brain could be working in cases where we don't really know. Uh, and so, yeah, it's really, um, it's a similar set of tools as what could be used to understand artificial neural networks for the purposes of safety or, uh, you know, deploying them in the real world. You want to know what their properties are and how they're coming to their conclusions. And so it's very similar. And uh, so you would think, you know, with all the years that neuroscience has existed, that once we got to this point where people wanted to understand artificial neural networks, which are perfectly observable, you can do anything you want, you can get the activity of all the neurons, you can see all of the connections, you can do any experiment you want, which is not how the real brain is, you would think that we'd be real ready to be like, oh, here's exactly what you should do to try to understand that artificial neural network. Here's the tools you should use, and here's the conclusions they'll be able to draw for you. 
that's not exactly where we're at. Um, I mean, we can, and I have, and others have taken the tools of neuroscience and applied them to these networks, and you get some understanding. You know, you do get some, um, you know, results that you can say, okay, now I have some better sense of how this network is working and how maybe I'd want to tweak it either to make it work better or to make it a better model of the brain. And a lot of times those aren't completely aligned. Um, so uh, we have some options, but I'm actually quite interested in using neural networks as a way to test out and develop tools that we can then apply to the brain mm -hmm. because they're these perfect uh, experimental settings for us where we can do whatever we want. Um, I think that that's a good avenue forward for computational neuroscience to, to prepare us for a time when we will be able to record a lot more from the brain mm -hmm. and do a lot more experiments. We want to have the analyses and the mathematical modeling tools ready for all that data. So they're not they're not fully ready for AI right now. <laughs> they're in the, works. in the works. And hopefully the AI people will develop um, their tools that then we can also steal as well. <laughs> yeah. It's a cool, yeah, it's interesting to hear. Yeah, I think what they're doing, what this other company is doing with like linguistics or whatever, with language you're doing with visuals where you're like, okay, mm -hmm. what the hell, what, what is, what is this set of neurons doing? Oh, that's the one that looks at the color red or whatever. Um, yeah. It, uh, and it's cool. I like what you just said there, which is like, as we get better and better at um, modeling brain activity and understand, you know, we got whatever, 100 billion neurons or 86 billion neurons or whatever. It's like, okay, once we have that full mapping, then uh, the nice thing is that we'll have used a playground for the last, you know, couple decades or whatever around artificial neural networks such that when we actually do it on the brain, we'll like have, it won't be our first time at bat or whatever. Um, yeah. yeah, that's, I like that. Do you think the other like bonus question here is around kind of, you know, Neuralink and, you know, neosensory and these like ways to kind of um, tap, you know, understand brain functioning or to like, you know, use brain functioning to modify real world stuff or whatever. Like, I don't know, I guess, I guess my question here is maybe something like, you know, how do we think, or how do you think that, I'm thinking about this like information flow piece as well, where it's like, we have information flowing within humans or whatever and like eventually um that stuff is going to we're going to have a, an increasingly robust apa api layer to our brain how do you see that like api layer evolving or whatever both the input and the output to it yeah so i think um like my immediate reaction is that any true neural interface is very far off for the average person mm -hmm. <laughs> because to get good signal you usually have to open the skull and that's that's a big deal. <laughs> You're not going to be casually opening your skull. <laughs> not on um, a random so. Tuesday or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the alternative then is to use some sort of outside the skull monitor that's going to have far less signal to noise. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just at least the, the ones that most of the ones that are in existence now are more frustrating to use than they are fun. Um, and so I think for most people on a day-to-day -day basis, they're not going to be doing a lot of that. Um, but if we think, you know, you know, if I'm being real, you know, uh, optimistic, real yeah. far in the future, yeah. someday we do get really good brain computer interfaces where you can, you know, the activity of your neurons is actually guiding something in the real world directly. Um, I think it's, it's very interesting because studies on people who have had these implants and also on animals has shown that you can actually learn to use new uh, inputs and outputs in an interesting way. And so I think that that's kind of a fun 
experience that not a lot of humans have had in terms of, um, yeah, like creating a new interface with the world and figuring out how to use it and kind of creating a experience in your mind of what that is the same way that you can with your normal senses and your limbs and all of that. So I think it's cool and it would be fun. And I'm sure that people will find you know, ways to use that that make them really good at some obscure thing. <laughs> I can't anticipate now. Um, but people, you know, when you give them a technology, they figure out interesting things to do with it. So it's probably going to be a fun and interesting future. I just think it's not going to be for a very, very long time. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what you said around the, um, you know, uh, yeah, there's like, it's going to be a long time because it's hard to open up the skull. And um, once we get it, it, you know, that that sense of like that our brains are just these like correlation devices or whatever, and that they can learn new and there's these information processing things. And so like, we know what it feels like to like move our hands around or whatever. Um, and we will start to know as and people start to know once you like do these more this new weird interface it's like Google Glass and stuff like that. It's like, wow. But once the stuff is actually put in, we'll just kind of become used to it or whatever. And it'll be a new kind yeah. of interface for our mind. Um, okay. Yeah. So as we- And there have, though, mm-hmm. uh, there have been studies in terms of um, motor um, interfaces in, um, in non-human primates uh, in the lab that shows that there are certain patterns of you know controlling um something with your neurons that the animals can learn faster and other patterns that they can't learn as well Mm. so there are some you know preset as we've talked about kind of preset patterns that uh will make it easier to learn a certain type of controller in the real world versus a different type and uh understanding that would make the you know make it uh, make a better product for the people yeah. who are using this and also just is interesting from a neuroscience perspective yeah love it um so as the final two questions here um one is a for a recommendation piece is there uh where do like other where do you feel like the great like neuroscience folks hang out you know is there is there a place that you'd recommend folks go or at a conference or something like that yeah so um the main conferences for uh, for so for computational neuroscience, the main conference is called Cosine, mm-hmm. which is C O S Y N E. Uh, so not the the mathematical function. Mm-hmm. Although now, whenever I want to type the mathematical function, I spell <laughs> it that way because I go to Cosine all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's a computational and systems neuroscience conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another one that is more recent, but is really aligned with this kind of neuroscience AI artificial neural networks thing is the um, Cognitive Computational Neuroscience Conference, uh, which does some really interesting initiatives in terms of trying to get like actual, like explicit debates amongst people who have differing views and really get people thinking and talking. And so I like that conference a lot. And then a lot of the people who participate in all that stuff, they're on Twitter (laughs) and they're arguing with each other very openly about things. <laughs> so that's definitely a place to go. Join neuroscience Twitter, people. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's what you want. Um, and then a final the question here is um, one overrated, underrated. So I'll just like say one or two of these and you can tell me whether you, your hot take on whether you think it's overrated or underrated. Um, do you think that the role of dopamine, is that overrated or underrated? I'm going to say underrated because it probably does a whole bunch of crazy computations in the brain that we don't even know yet, even though people in popular science are already like excited and talk about it a lot. <laughs> They're missing out on probably, you know, 80 to 90% of its function. Wow, cool. Yeah, that's um, I'm surprised by that one because dopamine, yeah, like normal people know about it, like I knew about it or whatever before. And so it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But it actually but you does probably all these don't know things. a lot about it. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> and there's still a lot neuroscientists don't know about it. So I think, I think it's going to 
keep keep delivering. Okay, nice. <laughs> what do you think about like the neuron as a fundamental unit? Is that overrated or underrated? I think it's true, but I think it's overrated. So yeah, we could be looking beyond as well, or even sub neuron. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's mostly true, but it's overrated. Cool. And then and then uh, Neuralink. It sounds like you might think uh, overrated, but is that right? <laughs> yeah. I on the whole, I have to say overrated. They're doing interesting methodological work that you know neuroscientists will probably be excited to use. But in terms of the vision they're selling to the public yeah. <laughs> that's overrated yeah, yeah. Um, great classic uh well beautiful well thank you again grace for for coming on the show um for, uh, listeners definitely check out i mean if you want to understand the book from a like a cool like mathematical perspective models of the mind is what to check out i'll put it in the show notes um and grace also is there like a place people can find you on twitter yeah, I'm at NeuroGrace. Oh, nice, nice. You knew, you knew where you were a neuroscientist when you joined Twitter. Um, exactly. <laughs> um, well, thank you again uh, for coming today, Grace, and thanks for everybody for listening. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks.